morning, His Place Church. I hope you all can sing better than I can from all of the smoke and sulfur in the air from last night. My throat's kind of scratchy this morning. Let's take a moment and pray and thank God for His goodness. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you give us. We thank you for your gift of love and grace and mercy. We thank you that those mercies you have extended to us are new every single morning. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just set aside the events of the week and the events of this morning and really press in and just worship you for who you are. Upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. 
have a seat. Good morning. It is a beautiful day, and not just a beautiful day because of sunshine and the residue of fireworks floating still in the air. It is a beautiful day because we can gather as brothers and sisters in Christ and worship our God together. It is a good day to be part of the body of Christ. I have a little bit of a confession. Um, I went to our house. We had um, a little fireworks party in Washington, so there's my confession. We only lit, lit two things because our neighborhood was pretty much, in a good way, on fire. And then from this... From some of the conversations this morning, I see that Post Falls was pretty much a hot place to be from 9 o'clock till midnight from the sounds of it. Every dog in the country has been whining. Um, it, is, it is so much fun to celebrate life. Someone said this morning it's that they don't enjoy the fireworks as much. Others enjoy them a lot. And I won't mention names, but it's Dia's husband. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's the being together and celebrating and being part of family together. So it's been a wonderful weekend, and it's, yeah, it is so good. I think because they shut down all the big shows that everybody bought fireworks and did their own this year. So as you go out there, breathe the fresh air because it wasn't fresh last night. Um, <laughs> um, I, just a quick reminder, we started on... Wednesday, we started praying, and I know everybody, we were to pray without ceasing, and I know we pray, but we began on Monday, the first, or Wednesday, the first of July, our prayer team, and so thank you for those that have signed up for a slot for once a week to pray. Um, it is, I'm very, very excited, and I think the list is growing daily, so if you haven't um, checked it out, think about it, pray about it, um, and contact Sharon at prayers at hisplace.org. Or if you have a prayer request you'd like that team to pray for, please send it to the office or prayers at hisplace.org so we can pray for you. Um, we also started the Read Through the Bible, Read Scriptures. How many of you guys started this week? All right, how many of you guys finished the Bible this week? Okay, good. Me neither. I, it's, for me, it's, it's an exciting thing. Um, I love Genesis. I love the narrative. I love the truth in those stories as we see God creating everything. Um, I'm going to read a, a small piece of Genesis 1-1 today. But this week, just in the four days that we have gone, we have gone all the way through um, the, the covenant. We hear, we hear the covenant from, for Noah we have the covenant for Abraham. I think that was today. Um, and we see God unraveling this beautiful plan of redemption, of calling a people to himself. And so right there in the first week, we, it is such a joy to walk through the word together. Um, I'm going to read Genesis, a little bit of Genesis 1-1, um, as we think about who we are in the light of eternity depends 100% on who God is the creator God. So let's read this together. I have to remember where it's at. There we go. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning on the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters so they were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning on the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which was their seed, each according to their, its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, the, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let the let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw that, he, that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, Creator God, we read this and we marvel at your greatness, at your power, your omniscience, your omnipotence. You can do everything that you set your mind to. You are the creator, you are sovereign, you are Lord, you are King. We worship you. Father, thank you that you have called us to be a people. Thank you for your word. You've revealed yourself to us so that we can know you and marvel at who you are. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here today, for those at home, for those that are traveling on vacation, camping, and all those things, Father, we just lift them up before you as we worship together. Thank you for this day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Father, bless our time as we continue in worship, as we continue in worshiping in song, in the word, and in fellowship. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Yeah. 
Yeah. 
Great. 
Grab a seat. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are worthy of our praise, of the highest praise. Jesus, you became a man taking on a human nature, maintaining your full divinity, but yet humbling yourself as a servant living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we should have died, taking upon yourself all the wrath that the Father poured out that was due us upon yourself. Spirit, you sustained the Son through that ordeal. Father, it was your will that he come to save us, and you planned it from the very beginning. All of these things we give you praise for, and so many more. We've been made a family, we've been made new, we've been changed, we've been forgiven, all of those things by your substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus, by you declaring us justified, Father, and by your indwelling and regenerating presence, Holy Spirit. We thank you. We bow before you. We're in awe of you, our triune God. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that in your kindness, that your spirit would open our ears to hear it. Would you help us to understand it, illumine our minds to welcome it? And I pray you'd make us more of what you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and stand and turn. Bet you can guess, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning, and we're going to back up and start in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, to get a little context, but our text today is all of chapter 5, and we'll actually finish 1 Peter today. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So... I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Please be seated. Can't help but notice our text today starts with the word so, which is immediately referring back to what he just said. He said, listen, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's taken right out of Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9 follows Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8 is an indictment by God towards all of his chosen people Israel. Why? Because every segment of their society has turned away from him to worship false idols. And God takes the prophet Ezekiel in a vision to see every segment of his society, including the leaders of Israel, and he shows their idolatrous hearts. Then in chapter 9, says, God says this. He says, I'm not going to put up with their idolatry anymore. I'm going to bring judgment, and that judgment is going to proceed from my house, the temple, and it's going to start with the elders of the people. And chapter 8 shows a judgment that only preserves those who are not idolaters. Everybody else is wiped out without exception. Judgment begins at the house of God for the Old Testament people and begins first with the elders of the house. That's what he's referring to here when we begin chapter 5. So, because judgment begins, the house of God, because the suffering, the persecution that believers undergo, God intends to use to purify us, not to destroy us, to make our faith strong, not to make us weak. Because that type of judgment begins at the house of God, it starts with the leadership of the church. So he says, so I exhort the elders among you. And if you're an elder, if you're a pastor, because the word means the same thing. In fact, you're going to see the words elder, pastor, overseer, all used today to refer to the same group of guys. They're all the same. 
pastors, our elders, our overseers, our pastors, our elders, our overseers. It's all the same group of people. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. In the context of the suffering which God uses to purify his church, in the context of judgment and persecution for our faith, which God uses to strengthen us, because judgment begins with the elders of God's people, he starts with the elders. And I'm going to suggest to you that he lays out five things today. And, and it, it, it's almost like this is just encouragement, exhortation, but there are five things in here that are key for the life of the church. Not just in the first century, but right now. These are five elements, I might say, five elements that need to exist in a church if it's going to endure in hard times, in troubles, in suffering, in persecution. And if you haven't noticed, it's coming. It's coming, folks. These are five things we must have in our church here. Five things, five elements we must have. And the first one is this, exemplary leadership. And I chose that word intentionally because exemplary means an example. Leadership, elders that are an example to the flock. Where do I get that from? He says, I exhort, verse one, I exhort the elders, the pastors, the overseers. These are men who are both, the word elder means old, and it also means, it implies wise. So the idea is these are men that are both old enough and wise enough to lead God's church. They've been called by God. They've been gifted by him. And they must have the gift of teaching, by the way, because they shepherd, they lead via God's word. The elders among you. And the idea is in every church in the New Testament, multiple elders were appointed in every church. There's never a church in the New Testament that we're aware of that has just one single pastor. There's always a multiplicity of them. We have a multiplicity of elders in our church here. That's scriptural. Among you, the, the, the elders were chosen from among the people. And he says, and Peter says, I, I exhort you as a fellow elder. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. He says, no, I am your fellow elder. I, I, I am also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's coming alongside them. And he says, I know how much Christ suffered for us. I saw Christ suffer with my own eyes, at least in part, Peter says, because he saw him in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? He was one of the first, of the first string three that got to go a little bit further in the garden and observe Jesus crying, weeping with tears like great drops of blood because he was about to receive God's wrath upon himself for all of our sin. He also, Peter was also there when the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus and began to mock him and strike him. In fact, at that very moment, that's when the young gal asked him, hey, you're one of them, aren't, aren't you? And he, and he denied that he knew Jesus. And one of the gospels tells us at that moment, he locked eyes with Jesus. At that very moment. Here's Peter who actually denied Christ. He, he was the cause even of, his, some of, of some of his suffering, why he betrayed Christ, by denying he even knew him. And yet Peter is the apostle to whom we now listen for encouragement. I, that's a good word for me. Because I don't know about you, but I, I'm far from perfect in my walk with Christ, and it's nice to know that Christ restores. Amen. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus restored Peter to ministry, and Peter became a witness to others about Jesus' willingness to suffer on behalf of his people, and it's the same suffering, frankly, that all of us are also called to share in. Why? 1 Peter 4.13, remember last chapter? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The same sufferings that Jesus suffered, we are called to suffer, and the same suffering elders are called to share in. 
And that's why he addresses them as fellow elders. Why? Because God's refining fire of suffering begins with the elders. They're going to take it first. They should. They're going to receive kickback from the world for their faith because they're the ones that are going to be out in front. So he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. See, Peter is a fellow sharer in the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns for his people in glory. Glory which all of us are going to share after we endure suffering. Romans 8, 17 says this, we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. I hope you're convinced by now that God intends for believers to suffer for a very good purpose. If you're not convinced, I don't know what to say at this point because that's what this whole book has been about. Suffering is the norm for Christian life. Now, it comes in waves. It's not always the same, right? But why do we need it? Because we need to be purified. We need to be made stronger in the Lord. We need to recognize that that, that which the world might purpose to tear us down, God intends to build us up with. His instruction to the elders is this, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. This is the verbal form of the word from which we get the word pastor. Pastor. Pastor the flock of God. Be a shepherd to the flock of God that's among you. The role of a shepherd includes what? Caring for, leading, guiding, and protecting the sheep, right? In John 21, 15 through 17, when Jesus restored Peter, what did he tell him? He told him three things. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep, Right? That's what a shepherd does. It's a primary job of an elder, a pastor. That's why they're all called to be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. Why? Because the primary job is to feed the rest of the body with God's word. Because that's what makes you strong. We tend God's sheep with the word of God. That's the primary role of an elder. And so I encourage you as your interim pastor, pray. When God brings your permanent pastor moving forward to this body, pray that he is a man of God's word that loves God's word, and that loves to study it so that he might feed you well. I beg you for his sake and for your own, pray for that. It's essential. Now, the great thing is you don't have just one pastor. You've got a pastel of them, and they all have hearts to see you fed. And it's been fun getting to know them and hear them praying for you and caring for you and seeing how they, how they feel so very deeply about your welfare. You need to know that that's how your elders, your pastors feel about you. They love you. God's word is our food, and elders need to feed the church with the word. That's why 1 Peter 2, 2 says that we're to desire the pure spiritual milk of the word so that we, by it we may grow up into salvation, Right? Shepherd the flock of God, he says in verse 2, that is among you. Pastor God's flock, God's people, not from a distance, but among them. Among them. Sorry, camera guys, I apologize. I'm walking down the aisle. I know you can't see me right now. But a pastor is not supposed to be like behind, calling out instructions to everybody saying, go that way. I'll follow. That's not it. He's a shepherd amongst the people. That's, that's what we're called to do. Elders are called to be among the people because ultimately we're just sheep ourselves under the chief shepherd, which is Christ. And he's called us as sheep to also be shepherds to other sheep. Got it? We gotta be with you to care for you. 
It's impossible. There's a relational aspect that cannot happen unless the shepherds are among their people. Not from a distance. We shepherd those that God has given us to take care of, the ones in our local church. Shepherds, elders, may I encourage you, don't think that you can possibly lead God's people like some distant CEO. Godly leadership requires the closeness of relationship. Why? You've got to be an example. We're going to see that. And examples can't be seen from afar very well, right? Number two, shepherd the flock, verse two again, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. How? It's interesting in the Greek, the next words are how. It's by exercising oversight. Interesting. The shepherding is to be done through watching over, watching over with care for the welfare and the protection of God's people. Now, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example from Ezekiel 34. It's so interesting because there's a lot of Ezekiel that shows up in 1 Peter. I want you to see what God thinks about shepherds who don't do a very good job of caring for their flock. And I'm not talking about shepherds leading physical sheep. I'm talking about leaders of God's people who are supposed to feed them with his word. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you haven't strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they, the sheep, were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I'll rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. That's how God feels about shepherds, leaders of his people who do not feed his sheep and care for them. Judgment begins at the household of God and it starts with the elders, the shepherds, the pastors. Shepherd the flock of God that is over you. Why? By exercising oversight, by tending and caring for the welfare and the protection of the sheep the way God cares for them. That's why Peter now lists three requirements of the shepherds that deal with their motives, their heart motives, and the manner in which they must care for God's people. He lays these out negatively and positively three times. Look what he says. Shepherding the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, here's the first negative, not under compulsion. Not because you're forced into it. Not because you feel it's your duty or obligation, although honestly there is an obligation and a duty upon a shepherd, but if that's the only reason he's doing it, there's something wrong. Not because no one else will do it if you don't. Someone's gotta do it, so uh, I'll gut it out. 
Elders who lead under compulsion often become grudging and reluctant and burned out. They won't care for God's people properly because they don't have the right heart motive. What is that right motive? He says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Willingly, voluntarily, by choice, a wholehearted desire motivated to serve Jesus and love his people as a shepherd, as an elder. First Timothy 3.1 tells us that an elder must desire to be one. Now, I'll be honest with you, a human moment. There are moments in every shepherd's life where he's like, boy, I'd like to work at that donut shop. Why? Because he's not sufficient to the task. I am not sufficient to the task of pastoring. That's kind of the point. A shepherd has to remain completely, completely filled with the Lord's strength and power daily, day after day, going back into his word so that he can possibly do his job. But by the way, that's part of the joy that God brings in shepherding is it forces you to stay connected to the very God that you need that is your joy. So there are benefits, <laughs> tremendous benefits in being a shepherd. Willingly, there is no joy in grudging service, and jo a joyless shepherd makes a poor pastor. You must be willing to be an elder. And then he says, as God would have you. In other words, according to God's will. God wills that elders be willing. Then he adds another negative. Elders, you shouldn't be serving for shameful gain. For shameful gain. Interesting, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And if you understand the Greek language, that's referring to the guys that spend, they're the primary teachers of the church and they have to spend a lot of time studying so that they can feed the people. And that time takes them, that time studying takes them away from a job with which they can support their family so they need the church to support them. That's clear in scripture, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. However, money cannot be the motivation of the heart of an elder or of a pastor to serve because elders and pastors should not be motivated to serve the church by money. They must not seek to enrich themselves in ministry. And if you think about this, um, just go on TV. I don't have to say anything else. The world laughs at those guys because they know what they're about. Nor should elders hold on to a position because they need the money. Because when they no longer have the right heart to serve, they're not fit to serve until they get the right heart. Not for shameful gain. But instead, notice what the, the, the converse is, eagerly. So not only are elders to serve willingly, but eagerly. There's, there's, there's within them a positive desire to want to serve and shepherd God's people. Jesus will not employ unwilling under-shepherds. Sometimes churches do, but Jesus doesn't. Verse 3, another negative, he says, you're not to serve them domineering over those in your charge, but instead you're to be examples to the flock. You're not to serve them as a domineering person. So he moves from dealing with the motivations to now he's talking about the manner in which elders should, should exercise their authority, not domineering. There should be no overbearing, harsh, or excessive use of authority. No forceful ruling over the believers in their church. 
Though elders do have God-given authority, that's clear, over those in their charge, they have God-given responsibility for those they shepherd in their local church body. Listen closely, that God-given authority is not to be the basis of their relationship with the flock. That authority is not to be wielded as the, as the basis for which I, I relate to you or any of our elders relate to you. The elders must remember that we are not the Lord. We serve him, and we serve those whom he loves. Our leadership is to look like Jesus. We're to pattern our, our leadership after his. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, he called his disciples to him, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's that domineering thing. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Peter says in verse 3, elders are not to be domineering over those in your charge. So how do they exercise their authority? How do they lead? How, how do they oversee? By being examples to the flock. By being exemplary. Pastors, elders are to be examples. We are called to live lives that others can use as a pattern for what it means to follow Jesus. That makes my knees knock. We are called to live lives that others, that y'all can use to become more like Jesus. And I have to ask, Elder, Dave, if others lived like you do in public and private, would, be, would they be more like Jesus or less? Mr. Pastor, Mr. Elder, will someone who emulates your public and private life become more like Jesus or less? How we live our lives is key. As pastors, do our lives reflect Jesus' character in how we speak, how we act, how we respond to others? What comes out when we're under pressure, when things get challenging, when people question our decisions, our motivations, or our manner of service? And by the way, that, all, that happens to every pastor. I can bear a witness. What comes out when we're squeezed? Jesus or something sour? Something less. God's refining judgment begins with us, pastors and elders. We must own our God-given responsibility. Elders must realize that living a life worthy of imitation is not optional. It's a huge part of our job. We don't give commands from behind, but we lead from among. The brothers and sisters, by example, why? You can't see the example unless we're among you, right? Right? By the way, that's another reason you need a pastor that's local. <clears throat> we don't give commands from behind, but we lead from among. We must meet a higher standard than worldly leadership. The Bible says we are responsible to model Jesus to his people, and we can't do this by our own strength. Uh, therefore, elders and pastors must be in the word constantly, constantly, depending upon the Father in prayer and relying upon the Spirit to help us stay very close to Jesus because we can't do this on our own. But there's a reward. There's a reward that's amazing. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears... This is our ultimate motivation for serving God's people as an elder, as a pastor. When the chief shepherd appears, you, elders who serve him faithfully, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
I don't know what that looks like, but that sounds cool. When the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13, 20, comes back for his own, then we, pastors and elders, will give an account for their souls, Hebrews 13, 17, and he will reward those who have served him faithfully, who fed and cared for his people with willing and eager hearts as examples of Christ-likeness that they could emulate. What is the reward? Faithful shepherds will receive an unfading, always new, everlasting reward, a crown of glory. And what makes it special, it's going to be an eternal reminder of God's pleasure in, that, in us because the Spirit has enabled us to love and care for his people. Isn't that amazing how God rewards that which he does in us? He gets credit for everything ultimately. I don't think any pastor or elder in heaven that served faithfully is going to be walking around saying, I did this. Hey, look what God did. <laughs> Am I causing that, by the way, that noise? Am I? Let me move this down here. It's a good thing the next point is uh, humble hearts. An enduring church, I'll try and stay still. That's really hard for me. An enduring church needs exemplary leadership. And if our church is going to be one that gracefully endures God and ordained suffering, we need exemplary leadership, but we also need humble hearts. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. It's funny, some of your translations say younger men, but the word doesn't say men, it just says younger. Some translations imply that this refers to all non-elders. I think it's most likely referring to just simply younger believers within the church. In other words, younger Christians, those who are younger in their faith, faith and the elders. Younger folks, be subject to your elders. Put yourself willingly under their God-given leadership of the pastors. Why? You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Willingly follow the God-given leadership of your pastors. Why? They are the pattern that you can pattern your life after. We all need examples to follow. And when you're a young believer in particular, you need to look to your elders, the ones God has given you as those examples so that you can see how they live their lives. And I encourage you, get in their lives. They're supposed to be open to you. So get in there, get to know them, spend time with them, see their pattern, emulate it. <laughs> because by doing so, you should become more like Christ. You, younger believers, have a responsibility with the rest of the church to follow their leadership and guidance through the word and to value their protection. I know what some of you are probably thinking. Well, I'm not younger. I'm as old as some of the elders. Therefore, I get a pass. Let these young folks submit. This submission stuff doesn't apply to me. I'm up here, right? Well, in a sense, you are. We are peers in Christ. Nevertheless, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you, that's referring to all of us, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And the result is you'll be at peace with yourselves. Hebrews 13, 1, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no of no advantage to you. Think about this. All of us, all of us are responsible to obey God by submitting to God-given leadership. Wasn't that one of those chapters earlier? 
It applies in the church to our submission to elders. Can I say this? And I can say this from both sides of the coin, personal experience here. Pastors experience great inner pain and grief if the people they are responsible for leading with God's word are unresponsive to it. Pastors that experience too much of that struggle, and that's not a benefit to you. However, pastors experience great joy when they see those under their charge responding to God's word because that's the content of their leadership, right? They lead through shepherding by God's word and by example. Pastors experience this great joy when they see that you respond to God's word in obedience to Christ. Pastors that experience this are motivated to work even harder. Now, some of you are, well, all of you are, are very kind, at least the ones I met. And, uh, and some of you have been very kind and said, you know, I really appreciated that sermon and things like that. And that's encouraging. But there's nothing so encouraging as when someone says, wow, the word of God really hit me. And I need to think about how I'm going to change in response to that. Or the word of God really encouraged me. I've been in a hard spot, and I, I just felt God lift me up as those truths came in, and the Spirit opened my mind to understand and receive them. See, that's, that's what it means to put yourself under their submission, their direction by the word of God. Submit to your leaders. Why? Because judgment begins at the household of God. It may start with the leaders, but it goes from there to you. Likewise, you who are younger, because judgment begins with the household of God, that's what that verse, that's what that word likewise points back to. Be subject to the elders. Now he's pointing to all of us and he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you. The word clothe yourselves refers to putting on the apron of a slave, of a servant. It's the very same thing Jesus did in John 13, 4 and 5. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel... He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with that same towel of humility. He means that everyone in the church, elders, youngers, men, women, boys, girls, whatever, all need to have a common model of the kind of heart and conduct that we're aiming at. We need to be clothed. We need to put on a servant's garment of humility toward one another, toward one another, with a mindset that my needs are less important to me than yours. Your needs come before mine. That's, that's kind of the, the basic idea of humility, is putting others first. We're all called to be humble servants of one another. And in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we see it defined. He, Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then Peter, back in chapter 5 here, gives us the motivation for our own humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? For God opposes the proud. God sets himself against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a quote out of Proverbs 3.34, the Greek translation of it. The proud, those are those who are full of themselves, who glorify themselves, who have a high view of themselves, think of themselves as better, more valuable, more significant, more important than others. Anybody ever been proud? It's insidious, isn't it, how, how pride can creep in? I struggle with it. I do. I don't know why I should struggle with it. I really don't have much to be proud of. 
I can be proud about the dumbest things. So can you. Don't laugh. It's really not a laughing matter, though, because God sets himself against those who are proud. He thwarts them. He prevents them from succeeding in their plans. Why? Because prideful people are self-centered people and are not other-centered people. Those who care more for themselves than others don't receive God's blessing. But those who care more for others than themselves, God favors them with blessing. The humble experience God's help. That's why you want to do it. Do you not want God's favor on your life? I do. Sign me up. Do you want God's opposition or his blessing? Pick. Do you want him as an opponent? Or do you want, him, do you want his favor? Humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6. If you want his favor, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's the very term that, that Moses used referring to God's mighty works in Egypt back in Deuteronomy. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So that, this is the result. The proper time, when God determines whether in this life or the next, God will lift you up. How are we to humble ourselves? Verse 7 has the answer, and this is not apparent in the English, I'll be honest with you. Look at what verse 7 says. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The idea is we're to throw our anxieties, throw our worries, like when the hard times come, right? The things that, that, that cause us to worry and, and become self-centered, we're to throw those on God and surrender them to him in prayer. We're to trust him to take care of our worries. And we're not, we shouldn't be trying to bear them alone because we're not strong enough. We're not our own solution, right? And again, in the Greek, Peter is saying that we humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on God. How is casting your anxieties on God humbling? Humbling. Well, think about it. When we fail to cast our anxieties on God, what are we saying? I can fix my own problems. I'll just worry about them enough and eventually that'll fix them. When I'm worried and when you're anxious, we're self-focused, are we not? No. We don't put others first when we're self-focused. When we trust God with our worries, alternately, we recognize the reality that we're insufficient to handle life's difficulties. We own the depth of our need for God's daily grace, and so we humbly turn to him for it, and he gives it. And now we no longer need to be wrapped up in ourselves. We don't have to be self-centered. And now we have the ability to actually care about somebody else. Why? Because we've given our stuff to God. Then we can help somebody else with theirs. You see, listen to this, refusing to trust God with your anxieties ultimately is a subtle form of pride. When we hang under our anxieties and refuse to throw them into God's mighty hand, it's the opposite of humility, it's self-sufficiency, and it's subtly prideful. that shock you? So believe your worries on him. He truly cares for you. He will take care of you. Psalm 50, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4, 6. I bet you know this. Be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, right? And what happens? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We do indeed need humble hearts if we're going to be a church that lasts through difficult times, and they're coming. So we need 
Exemplary leadership, we need humble hearts and we need sober minds. And I'm going to have to go fast. Why? Verse devil prowls around a roaring lion. Sober mind. Not affecting your emotional balance. Not confused. Not overcome with anxiety. But instead, watchful. We're alert. We're paying attention. Why? We have an enemy. And he's been an active enemy of our God and Savior since before the garden. And the Bible call, says that he's, pouring, he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. And this is an image that they would have known very well because 100 years before this time when Peter writes this letter, the Romans started sending their criminals into arenas naked and bound and then releasing the lions on them. And eventually, after this time period, it would become a sport that Christians were exposed to on a regular basis. So they, they would have a good firm image of what it looked like for someone to be prowled by a lion and devoured because that's exactly what happened. This is the image that, that Peter uses to picture exactly what Satan wants to do to believers, wants to destroy believers through persecution and suffering, the very same persecution and suffering, suffering that God uses to strengthen you, to purify you, Satan wants to use to take you down. Believers, we're not helpless. We have a God who loves us and whose mighty hand we can cast out our anxieties. Verse 9 says, resist him, firm in your faith. How do we do it? What did Jesus do in Matthew 4 when Satan tempted him? He stood on God's word. We stand on God's word. We believe and we act upon what God says and we don't give in to Satan's life. We cast our worries, our anxieties, all. We don't depend on our own strength. We trust him to carry us through in spite of suffering and persecution. He wants to, you to think it's going to take you down. But if you trust the Lord, nope, bring you through. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Simply this, this is nothing new. The experience of suffering is normative for Christians throughout all the ages. It doesn't, shouldn't take you by surprise, and it doesn't take God by surprise. Guess what? He's totally available and ready to help you turn to him for that help. First Peter 4, 7 says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why do we need to be sober-minded? We need to be sober-minded, that is, self-controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, so that we can see things as they really are, which includes Satan's activity, but also includes the mighty hand of God. And we can be on guard for one another in our prayers because we need to be praying for each other. And I beg you, pray for your elders. Start with them because they need your prayers. Not only do we need sober minds, we need a future hope. Look at verse 10. So called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, He'll restore you. He'll put you in your life into order, into proper condition after you've suffered a little while. And we saw in chapter one, a little while can mean your lifetime or it can mean a little while. That's up to God. But he'll, he'll make you complete and sufficient for your intended purpose. He'll confirm you. He'll make you strong, steady, firmly established in your faith. He'll strengthen you. He'll give you strength to endure the suffering without wavering in your faith. And he'll establish you. He'll build a firm and strong foundation for your faith and th so you can send down strong roots into God's word to trust and have confidence that what he says is true. 
And by the way, does this sound just like chapter one? So that the newness of your faith, more precious than fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. God is and always will be in total control of everything. The suffering, Satan, your circumstances, everything. God's got it all in his hand. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we need to set our eyes on the hope that he has placed before us. So listen, folks, we need, if we're going to be a church that endures suffering, not only do we need exemplary, exemplary leaders and humble hearts and sober minds and a future hope, we need just one more thing. And I'm excited because I think this thing is already here in a really strong way. Not that the others aren't, but this one I've heard about. You know what I hear from you guys when I talk to you about your church? The word that comes often, most often, and happened this morning, I asked one lady who for that. I said, give me one word that you would use to Family, the fifth thing that, that we need to endure is family ties. Listen to what Silas for short. A, a, a faithful brother as I regard him. Notice he uses a family word, brother. I have written briefly to you. Silas would deliver the letter. Silas may have even helped him write the letter, but we know Silas delivered it. And he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting, encouraging, and appealing, and declaring, bearing witness, testifying to you all that this is the grace of God. The entire contents of the letter. He says, Jew is the entire grace of God. Pardon me? Slide my hand up on the mic. Wow. Let's finish. This is the grace of God. All the contents of this letter about how Christians should rejoice in times of suffering because God is refining and strengthening our faith through it. About how Christians, we are called to be holy. And we don't live our lives for ourselves, but to declare the excellencies of the God who's called us to his glory, to an unsaved world. About how we are called to willingly submit to God-given authority in every area of life so that the gospel might be seen as beautiful because of our submission. About how we're called to endure suffering for our faith with Christ-likeness, knowing that how we live our lives can open doors for the gospel and witness through our words and through our lives that can become a means by which others might come to know and trust Jesus. The whole letter is about God's grace in the midst of suffering. So believer, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. These words are for us to stand on, not for us to just listen to. Verse 13, she who is likewise chosen greetings. She who is at Babylon refers to the church in Rome. Why? If you think about it, Babylon, back in Ezekiel's day or back in the days of Daniel, was the place where the dispersion happened to. Believers were taken from Israel and dispersed into Babylon. The very same word dispersion is what he used in the very first chapter, I think very first verse, and he called them the dispersion. In other words, he was comparing them from the very beginning to believers who were undergoing persecution and were dispersed from their home. Well, believers down here, are not, we're not in our heavenly home and we're undergoing persecution. So Paul or Peter at this point is in Rome with Mark. We know that historically. 
And so he, call, he says, the church, the believers in Rome, she who is at Babylon, greet you. And so does my son Mark. You know, notice what's happening here? One family of Christians is sending their greetings to another family of Christians. We love you guys. And Mark says, hey, I love you too. They're with the kiss of love. Why? Because you're a family. You need to express your love for one another, genuinely, genuinely and warmly showing your heart for one another as a family in Christ. Then he ends with peace to all of you who are in Christ. Why? Because we're a family. You know, we're in Christ. We've been brought into Christ. We've been made a family in Christ, and he's the one who supplies our peace as we cast our burdens upon him, the peace that's only available to those who trust him. The kind of peace that we experience when we are being the church that God has called us to be. A church that lasts through tough times. Why? Because we can have exemplary leadership, humble hearts, sober minds, future hopes, and family ties. Do you want to be a church that endures when the hard times come? The elders have their part. That's part one. Parts four or two through five are all yours. Let's do this together. Lord God, thank you for the local body here at His Place Church, your family here. You have loved us. You've called us to your side. You've given us your spirit. You've changed us. You've made us different people. You've given us bonds together that are stronger than anything that happens in the human world. Lord, you have blessed us. And you're strengthening us so that we might endure for your glory as the hard times ramp up. I pray, especially for this body, Lord, that you continue to call us to greater holiness, to greater devotion to you, to greater love for one another. Give us humble hearts. Give us willing hearts to submit to the leadership of our elders. And I pray that you would draw our elders even closer to you. They have hearts that love you, Lord, and love the body. Increase that even more and bring additional leadership here that can serve alongside them as fellow elders and pastors so that we have the shepherds that we need. Father, bless and protect and preserve this lovely body. Thank you that I know you will do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Great is thy faithfulness,
Thank you, Dave, for your patience. Thank you, Body of Christ, for your patience. Um, in the back, we, we don't have the benefit back in the back room. You're watching it on a screen. So it was kind of like they were, I thought Tyson was editing things out you said. So I was going to have a word. because it was, and it, it was wonderful. Wonderful. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In times of suffering, the body of Christ, that's where we can shine in our love for one another. Genuine. I love that passage in Roman. Let love be genuine without hypocrisy. Love one another. So today, as you go out to visit family, friends, and just live life in this week, love one another, care for one another. And let's go out in the grace of God. Let's pray and thank God for today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this body. Thank you for those that are staying at home today, that are watching online, for those out traveling. Father, we lift them up. For those here gathered together, thank you that we can gather together brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship you. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, that we hear this message with some hard truths maybe, as, a, as it penetrates our heart. Father, help us to live in obedience, to walk in obedience, to love you because you are Lord, you are God, you are sovereign. Help us to love one another and love you in doing it. Father, thank you for this body. Bless us as we go out today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.